Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, talking about qualified immunity and the death of George Floyd. And this is Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Williams. And I know it's been a while, but uh, I've been a little bit busy. There's been COVID. Uh, now we have the civil unrest after the George Floyd uh, murder. And because of that, I'm bringing back to you Clark Neely, who is a Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute in Washington, DC. Clark, thanks for joining us today. Great to be back. Thank you. I will say that this right now sets a record. You are the guest with the most repeats on my show. So congratulations. <laughs> it's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's, let's get into it. I, I, I follow you on Twitter. I feel like I'm getting an education in, in law, like a free law degree. Yeah. And you uh, you go by at Con Law Warrior on Twitter. And lately you've been talking a lot about... Uh, qualified immunity and you've written several commentaries about that as well and i uh one that really uh struck a chord was one called george floyd's death must be a catalyst for accountability so you know first talk to us about qualified immunity yeah i know it may sound kind of obscure or some kind of lawyer talk but it's a really really important thing to understand the simplest way to understand it is that qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement. Uh, we have a very, very low level of accountability for police and prosecutors. In this. And as to qualified immunity really is the cornerstone of that policy. And here's how it works. Um, there's basically three ways that you can hold the police officer accountable. Uh, criminal prosecution, which is what we're seeing in Minneapolis uh, with the killers of George Floyd. There's internal accountability like internal affairs and citizens review boards and so forth. And then the third mechanism is enabling people to bring a lawsuit against a police officer who has violated their rights. For reasons we could get into, uh, but I'll just quickly summarize, the first two of those don't really work. Uh, Criminal prosecution is a very blunt instrument. Not all police misconduct is a crime. And second, prosecutors are the ones who have to decide whether to bring charges. And they have a massive conflict of interest because they work with police all the time. They depend on police to bring them cases and to testify in their cases. And they're very, very reluctant to ever charge a police officer with a crime, even when there has a, you know, been a blatant uh, criminal violation by a cop. Um, citizen review boards and internal affairs, uh, somewhat the same thing. Essentially, what you're doing is you're asking the police to decide whether the police did anything wrong. And you can guess what they almost always say. The answer is almost always no. So that leaves the ability to sue a police officer for violating your rights uh, in court. And that's where qualified immunity comes into play. And what qualified immunity says is you may not sue a police officer unless case where the exact same thing was done to somebody else. So like with George Floyd, if his family were, were going to try to sue these officers, they'd have to find a case in Minnesota where a police officer drove his knee into the neck of a prone, handcuffed, and unresisting 
human being for nine minutes until that person lost consciousness and ultimately died. And if that specific case is not already on the books, telling police they may not do that, then qualified immunity will apply and your case will be thrown out. So it's a very, very powerful uh, tool for police officers who have violated people's rights to get out of accountability. And that's the way it functions in our system. Okay, so that defies logic for me, but let me just walk through this to ensure that uh, I'm understanding you. There are three ways to hold police accountable. The first is prosecutorial or the prosecutors, yep. but there's an inherent conflict of interest since prosecutors depend on police for their other cases, so they're reluctant to bring a case, even yep. if there is wrongdoing. Yep. Second, you mentioned internal, so internal affairs. And you mentioned uh, police review boards, which I have some experience with that because I actually was chair of the police review board in Dallas. Uh, so I, I have some personal experience with understanding what you're talking about as far as that sort of internal accountability. Yep. And then and those two, you say, are pr pretty much uh, non-players. Right. The last is the ability of a citizen to actually bring a lawsuit against a police officer. But then to do that, qualified immunity requires them to find the exact same case in the exact same municipality and there's a law that says they cannot do the very thing that you're they're trying to sue for right you, you, have, to you have to find a case where a judge is that that specific act that you're that you say violated your rights you have to find a, a case where that was already done to somebody else and the court said no you, you can't do that precise thing and i can give you some examples of cases where the, 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 there's clearly been a rights violation, but the case was still thrown out of court because not because there was any doubt whether there was a violation of the person's rights, but simply because there was not the exact same uh, case on point already. And, and I know it sounds crazy, but that is in fact exactly how qualified immunity works. Okay. Give me, give me a case. You bet. Uh, so there was a case out of Georgia where police were uh, pursuing a suspect through a residential neighborhood. They caught up to him and tackled him in the front yard of a house where the family was out playing in the yard. There was uh, several kids, some adults, and the police made everybody lie down on the ground to secure the scene. Once they got the suspect handcuffed and everybody's lying down on the ground, the family dog comes out from underneath the house to see what's going on. The dog is not barking, he's not growling, he's not threatening anybody. The uh, police officer who's sitting on top of the suspect pulls out his pistol and takes a shot at the dog. He misses. Dog goes back under the house. A few minutes later, he comes out again. Same police officer pulls his pistol again, shoots at the dog, misses again. But this time he hits a 10-year-old boy in the back of the leg who's lying on the ground 18 inches away from that police officer. His family then sues. And the case is dismissed on qualified immunity grounds by the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals says, nope, you can't proceed with this case. Why? Because we don't have another case in this jurisdiction where a cop took a shot at an unthreatening dog and missed and hit a 10-year-old boy in the leg, so you can't go forward. Okay. So it's clear that that same sort of standard doesn't won't apply to someone like me or any other uh, non-law enforcement officer. How do we get to the point where that is the standard that must be met for law enforcement? What, what's the history behind that? Yeah, so the the history started off good, actually. In the wake of the Civil War, Congress enacted our main civil rights law, which was then called the Enforcement Act, and now we refer to it as Section 1983. And it provides uh, for broad liability on the part of government actors. It, it says that any state actor, that means anybody employed by a state or a city, shall be liable to the person injured 
for the deprivation of any right, shall be liable for the deprivation of any right. And what happened was that in 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court created a kind of a what what should have just been a very narrow exception to that for when a police officer was enforcing a law that was at the time thought to be valid and was later struck down. Um, and what happened was that the court took that kind of initial, very narrow, arguably kind of common sense, uh, uh, good faith exception, and they just kept growing it and growing it to the point where in 1980, Harlow v. Fitzgerald, they came up with this language that really has almost gutted Section 1983. And the language is that um, from now on, or from, from that point on, you, in order to sue a police officer or any other government official, you had to show that the right, you, you, were, you could no longer sue for the deprivation of any right. You could only sue for the deprivation of a clearly established right. That was the Supreme Court's language that they just inserted essentially into that statute. And the way, the only way to show that a right is clearly established is to find a case where that exact same thing happened to somebody else and a court said no. And if you can't find that case, and it really does have to be practically exact, and I can give you another example of just how close it has to be, um, then your case will be thrown out. And, and one of the things that's so perverse about it is outrageous, the police conduct at issue, the less likely you will be able to find a case on point. Why? Because it probably hasn't happened before. And the more likely that police officer will get away with it because of qualified immunity. So it's a really, really perverse and pathological doctrine. So, so qualified immunity began as a, I'll say a force for good after the Civil War, and it's evolved to to where it is now. Um, what was the reasoning that the Supreme Court decided to, I don't know, change the, I guess, the spirit of what that was supposed to represent as far as protecting citizens to now where it gives them zero right. protection? Yeah, so the Supreme Court has just a completely inaccurate view of, of how law enforcement works in the real world, probably because most of them don't have any real experience being on the receiving end of it. Uh, but the idea was that, you know, we don't want police out there, you know, um, uh, basically seizing up in the moment and, and and being afraid that they're going to be sued and they'll lose their house if they make the wrong decision. And we need to give them plenty of room to make difficult decisions in the spur of the moment. And, um, and of course, you know, there is some of that, but I mean, you're a doctor, you make difficult decisions in the spur of the moment. And so do pilots and plenty of other occupations that don't enjoy this kind of, uh, uh, you know, get out of accountability free card. But that was the idea. The idea was that we need to give police plenty of leeway uh, to, you know, to make decisions in the field. And, um, and, you know, unfortunately it just sort of morphed in, it certainly has gone far beyond any kind of maybe common sense. Hey, let's, you know, give these guys a bit of a break. And it really just now, really does amount to a kind of a get out of accountability uh, free card. And, um, you know, it's, it's not working. It really has um, virtually eliminated accountability. And I'll say one more thing. It's, it's not only is the, the, the court has um, uh, such a lack of understanding about how the real world, world works sometimes, because the other thing is, even when they do get held liable in those rare instances where a police officer is held liable for, for misconduct and there's a damages award, 99.98% of all dollars paid out in damages awards from police misconduct get paid out by the city, by the employer. Not, and that means by us, the taxpayer, not by the officer himself. Right. So that 
because they're indemnified uh, by the city. So this idea that police are lying awake at night worrying that they're going to lose their house, you know, or their kids college fund if they make the wrong decision in the field is a complete fiction. Uh, But you'll hear you'll hear proponents of qualified immunity pushing it every time the subject comes up. Yes, I learned about that when I chaired the board, yeah. the, the number of outstanding uh, monetary damages that were pending or had been paid by the city as a result of uh, lawsuits. So there is definitely a, a taxpayer burden that's that's hidden from the public right. uh, as a result. So, okay, where do we go from here? What What is the answer well, the good news is that the the George Floyd tragedy has, uh, I think, really provoked uh, a lot of attention and drawn a lot of attention to qualified immunity. Uh, my colleagues and I at the Cato Institute have a two-year campaign to eliminate qualified immunity. We've been making a lot of progress. And, you know, tragically, the death, the, the killing, the murder of, of George Floyd is, is really, I think, could be a you know, catalyst for real change. The, the good news is that there are two possible avenues to fix qualified immunity. When I say fix, I mean get rid of it. Um, and the first is that the Supreme Court could uh, reverse the cases in which they invented it, because they did, they invented this out of whole cloth. And since they invented it out of whole cloth, they have the ability to say, you know what, we were wrong, and there should be no qualified immunity doctrine. And we've asked them along with a bunch of other people to do that. Uh, There's a number of cases that are pending in front of the Supreme Court right now um, that involve qualified immunity. And if it wants to, the court can take those cases, can accept the, the cases for review, and it could just decide, you know what, we got it wrong. This is doing a lot of damage. Let's get rid of it. The uh, second avenue uh, by which qualified immunity could be eliminated um, is by Congress. Uh, that's because it's, it's not a constitutional doctrine. It's not set, you know, in sort of in constitutional stone. It really just it really uh, purports to be uh, an interpretation of a statute that Congress enacted. And if Congress doesn't like the way the Supreme Court is interpreting the statutes that Congress enacted, Congress can amend those statutes to clarify how it should be interpreted. And so we're working with a number of members uh, of Congress uh, on legislation that would simply clarify there is no qualified immunity defense under this Section 1983 civil rights law. So we've got two avenues to success, and both of those right now are open. And I think there is a real uh, possibility. And, and unfortunately, as I said, tragically, a lot of the reason why the odds are now a lot better than they were is because so many people are focused on qualified immunity as the legal rule that really kind of set the conditions uh, for the, the, the brutal and senseless death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Right. So just last question, playing the devil's advocate, what would a, a supporter of uh, qualified immunity say to uh, contrast your position? Well, what they would say is that police have to make uh, snap judgments in the field. They're not necessarily legal scholars. Uh, they don't have time, for example, to call a lawyer and find out whether they can you know, search somebody's uh, uh, car you know, or uh, handcuff somebody at a certain point, and they just have to have some leeway to make those decisions. Um, The response to that is, yes, they do, but they get plenty of leeway already, because guess why? Um, Just because you make a a mistake in the field doesn't mean you're automatically liable. Um, That's not the way it works. What it means is that you just have to go and try to explain to a jury of your peers 
why you made the decisions that you did it. And if it appears to them that you, the decisions you made were reasonable, even if they were mistaken, if they appear to be reasonable, then you will not be held liable. So this really all just comes down to whether or not a police officer should have to go in front of a jury and justify his decisions that he made in the field. And that's really what they're scared of doing. That's really what they don't want to have to do is to go and justify what they did in front of a jury because they know so many times that it's so unreasonable that they're not going to be able to explain it. Clark Mealy, Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you very much. I would recommend you go check out his commentary, George Floyd's death must be a catalyst for accountability. And if you're on Twitter, check him out on uh, at Conlaw Warrior. It's an education every single day. And I should also mention your book, right? Uh, yep. Terms of Engagement, How the Court Should Enforce Our Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. And that's uh, just, uh, you know, a pretty good primer on con law, I think. Excellent. All right, y'all. There's a lot going on nowadays. I want you to stay safe. Uh, but always, every single day, do your small part to speak up, stand up for social justice. Dr. Brian Williams, Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thank you, thank you, thank you once again for tuning in.